we turn our attention to the book of Exodus again, and it's easy to read the book of Exodus and to read the book and see it as a self-contained unit. And the reality is the book of Exodus is a story which is part of a larger story. The book of Exodus is a narrative, but it's part of a larger narrative. It's a, it's a simple narrative, but it's a part of a divine narrative. It's part of a grand narrative. And we've already seen a little bit of this last week when we talked about how the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus are tied together in the opening lines of the book of Exodus. And when you turn to the book of Exodus, and as we work our way through the book of Exodus over the next several months, we will also see that the book of Exodus shoots arrows. It's connected to passages throughout the Bible. In fact, all the way to the very end of the Bible. There are going to be people, and there are going to be events, and there are going to be institutions that we study in the book of Exodus that point forward to some of the most important themes in the entire Bible. When we come to Exodus chapter 2, we're reminded of the fact that, that God had made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And in Exodus chapter 2, and indeed in Exodus chapter 1, we might begin to wonder, can God keep his promises? Everything seems to be aligned against God's promises being fulfilled. He had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob they would be a great nation. And indeed, they were a numerous people, but they were a subjugated people. He had promised to give them a land, and they found themselves in bondage in a foreign land, a land that God had taken them to. And he had promised that they would be a blessing to the entire world. And yet, we see not a hint of it at this point. When we, when we look at Exodus chapter 2, there's a number of things I want us to notice, but this morning, one of the main things I want us to notice is this, the danger of try, trying to accomplish God's will in your own way. The first thing that I see in these opening verses, in fact, the, the opening 10 verses that Josh read just a moment ago is God's sovereignty and a mother's courage. We might note that God appears to be absent in these 10 verses. And a mother seems to be unbelievably ingenious and courageous. But I want to suggest to you that God's sovereignty and this mother's courage were working hand in hand to preserve the life of the one that God would raise up eventually to deliver Israel from Egyptian bondage. In the opening two verses that were read to us a moment ago, uh, we note the conception and the birth of a, of a baby who isn't actually named until later in the, in the first section. But whenever the Bible slows down and describes the conception and the birth of a child, usually that child is going to play a very important role in God's plan. And that's exactly what we see right here. This husband and wife conceive a son. And when she saw how beautiful the child was, she hid him for three months. Remember that the Egyptian midwives in chapter one were to kill baby, Hebrew baby boys when they were born. But they refused to adhere to Pharaoh's edict. 
So Pharaoh went a step further and he told the Egyptian people to take the Hebrew baby boys and and throw them into the Nile River. The most dangerous place in the ancient world to be a Hebrew baby boy was in the land of Egypt. But the truth of the matter is we haven't progressed too far beyond the Egyptians And in fact, you might say that we as a nation have digressed from the Egyptians. If the most dangerous place in the ancient world for a newborn baby, Hebrew baby boy to be born was Egypt, the most dangerous place for a child to be in its mother's womb is now in New York State. On the 46th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the New York State Legislature passed a law that essentially defines life when a baby is outside the mother's womb and alive. And that prior to that, For the mother's health, a, baby can be ter- a baby's life can be terminated up until the time it is actually born. It defines health, a mother's health, so broadly that it means virtually anything and everything. What was most stunning was when the law was passed the New York State Legislature broke into applause and cheers. It's a chilling place to be conceived in New York State. That's exactly where, to some degree, the Hebrew baby boys were. Exodus chapters 1 and 2. When... The mother of Moses determined that she could no longer hide him. She conceived a a plan. The plan was to build a basket and place him in the basket and, and then to cover the basket and to place the basket on the Nile River, the very place that the baby boys were to be thrown in order to drown. And that his sister, we'll learn her name later, Miriam, was to watch and to see what would happen. At this point, if we were reading the story for the first time, we would be on the edge of our seat. We would know that the baby's important because the baby's birth is described though we don't yet know the baby's name and we don't yet know God's plan for the baby. But for the baby to be placed in a basket on the Nile River, his sister watching from a distance to see what unfolds, we would have been, we would have been stunned to see that at just this time, Uh, Just this moment, Pharaoh's daughter, the daughter of the man that had ordered the Egyptians to drown Hebrew boys in the Nile, comes to the Nile to be bathed. In verse 4, his sister is standing at a distance. In verse 5, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the Nile. And her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds. And sent her maid and she brought it to her. 
When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the boy was crying and she had pity on him. She's unlike her father. She is stunningly unlike her father. She's been raised in the home of a maniacal madman who's engaged in infanticide, who has ordered the murder of Hebrew baby boys and his daughter has pity on him. We can only pray to God that the people of New York State will have pity on the unborn babies that are conceived there. You know, Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. If there's any doubt about what God thinks about a baby in his or her mother's womb, God knit me together in my mother's womb. Psalm 16 says, the Lord hates hands that shed innocent blood. What will this lady do? She has pity on the child, but she lives with the man who has decreed that if she is going to obey him, she must take that baby and plunge it under the water until its lungs are filled with water and it ceases to breathe. Blessed be the name of the Lord that she's not like her father. Blessed be the name of the Lord that it's possible to not be like a Pharaoh-like father. She says, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, that is, she's Johnny on the spot. You see something of the ingenuity of the mother. Well, we don't know if she had planned to have the baby there at just this time when Pharaoh's daughter would come down. How was she to know that Pharaoh's daughter would have pity rather than to murder the child? We don't know how all of this was put together. We only have little snippets of it. But we know that his sister takes advantage of the moment. She sees something. She hears something. She recognizes something in this daughter of Pharaoh. And so she says, shall I, shall, shall I call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother, which is her mother. The irony of all ironies. While God isn't mentioned, God is obviously at work. What are the possibilities from a human perspective that Moses' mother would be the one that would nurse him after having placed him in the basket, having placed him in the Nile River, and that Pharaoh's daughter would pay her to care for him? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew up and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses because I drew him out of the water. How phenomenal a story is that? How could anyone not believe that God is not at work behind the scenes? 
The people of God might have wondered. God had promised we would be a great nation. We're a great people. We're a numerous people, but we're hardly a great nation. God had promised us a land, and here we are subjugated in a foreign land. God had promised us we would be a blessing to the nations, and yet we're not even a blessing to ourselves. And yet God had a plan. The plan was unfolding. The plan was taking shape. They just didn't recognize it. They just didn't see it. It's now a question, will Moses be an Egyptian or will Moses be a Hebrew? Will he align himself with his adopted family or will he align himself with his blood family? Will he become one of the Egyptian princes? Well, he was a prince. His mother was a princess. Or will he reject power and glory one day and align himself with his people? Interestingly enough, in verses 11 through 15, I want you to notice this. Beware of making bad choices by thinking you can help God accomplish things more quickly than he intends to accomplish them. Sometimes we get frustrated with God. Sometimes we get impatient with God. We don't say it like that. We don't think it like that. But if you're a type A person and God isn't moving quite as quickly as you want him to move, you will take the reins yourself and you will try to help God along. You will try and force circumstances and situations and, and it, will, it will result in absolute catastrophe as we will see here with Moses. In verses 11 through 15, Moses does exactly that. He tries to take matters into his own hands. Interestingly enough, Stephen, the first Christian martyr in the early church, in the book of Acts, chapter 7, is telling the history of Israel before he's murdered. And he's recounting the works of God throughout history. And he he talks about this very episode. He talks about this very instance in the life of Moses. Listen to it and follow along as I read from Acts chapter seven. And you'll notice that verses 11 through 15 fit in perfectly with what Stephen is saying. But Stephen gives us a little bit more insight, a little bit more of the workings behind the scenes and, and what was going on in Moses' mind. Moses was educated in all the teaching of the Egyptians. And he was a man of power in words and deeds. Well, of course he was. He had become the grandson of the grandson of Pharaoh. But when he was approaching the age of 40, so when we get to verse 11, 40 years have passed in the life of Moses. From one to 10 is 40 years. In fact, Moses' life can be broken down into three 40-year increments. The first 40, he spends in the palace of Pharaoh, being educated and trained in Egyptian learning living in opulence and splendor, while his people lived in squalor and subjugation. From 40 to 80, he's going to become a nobody. He's going to live in absolute obscurity. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren. Notice Either he was told early on what had happened to him 
or there was some intuitive sense that he knew that he, he didn't really belong among the Egyptians, that he himself was Hebrew, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being threatened unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. Apparently, at the age of 40, the pieces of the puzzle are coming together. He's educated. He's highly regarded among Pharaoh's court. He's a man on a trajectory that's going to take him to great places. He's going to accomplish great things. He feels very good about his, about his education, about his upbringing, about his background, about his abilities. And in some sense, some way, there's an intuitiveness about him. He senses, I am to be the one that will deliver my people. I'm the one that will deliver Israel. But he acts presumptuously. He acts prematurely. He acts with a premeditative kind of action that is going to set him back literally 40 years. That's what happens when we take things into our own hands and we take them out of God's hands. That's what happens when we think our ways are better than his ways. Our ways are quicker than his ways. I know what God wants. God wants us out of Egypt. God's been very slow about it. We've been here for about 400 years. I can get it done today. I can start the process today. I can begin to do what God hasn't been able to do. But now that God has me, I'm somebody. I'm a somebody. I've got prestige and power, and I know what it's like to to be able to to work through difficult circumstances and situations, and so I'm going to strike out on my own. I'm going to accomplish God's will on my own. And it ends in utter catastrophe. In fact, in in these verses, 11 through 15, he's going to have to He's going to have to flee. He's going to have to leave the land. I want you to notice with me thirdly, in verses 16 through 22, that living living in exile and learning the lessons of becoming a nobody. That is, Moses was somebody in his own mind. Moses needed to become a nobody in his own mind. Moses will go from from the palace of Pharaoh to a Bedouin's tent. He will go from opulence to a meager substance in existence. But you see very quickly when he enters into the wilderness, he begins to understand he's not who he thought he was. See, type A people, we have sometimes have a difficulty thinking we know who we are. In reality, we don't know quite as much about ourselves as we would think we do. So beginning in verse 16, well, let me go back and pick up in verse 15. When, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. 
There's something in him to want to defend. He has this, this wonderful quality to want to defend the oppressed, the marginalized, the outcast. So he defends these seven ladies who are watering their father's flock from the shepherds. And not only does he defend them, he then in turn waters the seven ladies' flock. It says, when they came to Ruel the father, he said, why have you come back so soon today? So they said, an Egyptian. He dresses like an Egyptian. He sounds like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. The, the, the Hebrews are enslaved in, in uh, Egypt. He, he probably isn't a Hebrew. He, he must be an Egyptian. And what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. So Ruel said to his daughters, where is he then? Why is it that you have left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses was willing to dwell with the man and he gave him his daughter Zipporah and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son and he named him Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses is settled in to become a shepherd. He settled into the life of a nobody. He settled into the life of a servant. He settled in to, to live out his days raising his children, caring for his wife, and living an existence in obscurity. He probably thought back at times when he was a somebody. There's something about being a somebody. There's something about being respected and regarded and, and, and waited on when you're a somebody. But somebodies have a tendency to expect that, don't they? When you're a somebody, you expect to be waited on. You expect to have a lot of laudatory comments uh, uh, coming your way. When you're a nobody, you don't expect too much. But Moses wasn't just a nobody. Moses became a servant. He, he, God was at work in him. I want you to notice with me, fourthly, God's unfailing love for his people. Because as I've mentioned, there hasn't been a lot of talk about God so far in chapter 2. He's mentioned three times in chapter 1. Not a lot about God yet in chapter 2. And we can only imagine what the Hebrews must have thought as they, as they languished in, in severe subjugation, slavery, under the oppression of the, of the Egyptians and particularly Pharaoh, building storage cities and, and doing the manual labor for the Egyptians. Uh, they must have wondered over and over again, where is God? Has God forgotten his promises? Has God abandoned us? Has God forsaken us? Does God even exist? You can understand why there may be some of them that might even wonder, does God even exist? So in verses 23 through 25, now it came about in the course of those days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. As we read it kind of plain and Maybe blase, but think of the word sigh. Sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out, and the cry 
for help. And they cried for help because their bondage rose up to God. God God was hearing. God was watching. So God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When it says God remembered, it doesn't mean that God had forgotten. What it means is God's about to act on those promises. God doesn't forget things. God remembered what he had said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But when the Bible says God remembered his covenant, God was getting ready to do for the children of Israel what he had promised Abraham, and Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. Everything in those three verses are intended to communicate to us, the reader, God's about to act. God is on the move. Something's about to happen. Just because you don't see God at work, that doesn't mean that God isn't working. Just because you can't hear his footsteps means that he's not there. Just because you can't feel his presence doesn't mean that he isn't with you. God will keep his promises. God doesn't need you or I to speed him along. God needs you and me to be ready when he calls us into action. We need to be willing to live in obscurity. We need to be willing to be a nobody. We need to be willing to defend the oppressed. We need to be willing to serve the outcast. We need to be willing to raise our children and love our spouse. We need to be the kind of person day in and day out in obscurity God wants us to be so that when God gets ready to use us, we're ready. Not because we think we're somebody, we're highly skilled and trained and intelligent and gifted and charismatic and persuasive. God doesn't need those kinds of people. God wants to be used people like you and people like me. People that he can mold and craft and prepare to be used. Sometimes he's got to send us to a Midianite desert. Sometimes he's got to send us into obscurity. Sometimes he's got to put us in a place where we feel like we've been put on a shelf, where we don't think that there's any, any opportunities or any place for us that we've messed it up, we've, we've, we've mucked it up. I shouldn't have done what I did. I shouldn't have been presumptuous and tried to, tried to force God's hand like I did. But God is a good God. He's a forgiving God. He's a kind God. But God will send us into exile for our own good so that we can become not who we want to be, but who he wants us to be. Just because you don't see God at work doesn't mean that he isn't working. Well, we come to some, some final thoughts. We, we think about this for just a moment. Let me just elaborate again just on this, on this one idea. If you're a type A person, God can use you, but he can't use you if you're full of yourself. You may not be a type A person, God will still use you. But he'll only use us when we come to the place that we recognize ourselves as nobodies 
so that he can make us who he wants us to be. Don't push God, don't rush God, don't force God, don't challenge God, don't maneuver God. You can't outmaneuver him, you can't force him. Don't try to speed him along. Settle into Midian if that's where you are at. Settle into Egypt if that's where you are. Be the best you can be for the glory of God, whether it's Egypt or a Midianite desert or the deserts of Midian so that God can get you ready for whatever it may be. It may only be a moment of time on the stage of salvation history. Maybe it's you leading one person to faith in Christ in a coffee shop, in a grocery store, at the ball field, and then that person become one of the most significant Christian leaders the world will ever know. You may be long gone and dead when that takes place, but, but God may, be, be pre- may prepare you for just that moment, or maybe he'll prepare you for a series of significant moments. Maybe your moment is to raise that child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and you spend your entire life in obscurity, a a nobody in the world's eyes, just a stay-at-home mom. Just a parent that works 40, 50 hours a week but brings their children to discipleship, disciples their children in the home prays with their children at night, reads the Bible to them, memorizes scripture for Wednesday night, kids equip. Volunteers to serve in the youth group when your kids are in the youth group. That child becomes a teenager and that teenager becomes a college student. That college student becomes a force for God on a secular campus. And God calls that child who becomes a man or a woman of God to be a missionary and to serve in a faraway place in a, in a lonely land and then uses them for his glory. Don't try to escape Egypt or a desert on your own. The second thing I would say is there's, there's more going on in this story than meets the eye. Moses is going to be a great deliverer but he's not the great deliverer. Moses was born under an edict of death in Egypt. Jesus was born under an edict of death in Bethlehem. Moses had to avoid the tyrannical and maniacal work of Pharaoh Jesus had to avoid the maniacal and satanical work of Herod the Great. Moses was saved by God's providence and a courageous mom. Jesus was saved by God's providence through the intervention of angels who warned an obedient father to take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Moses was born in Egypt and God took him out. Jesus was born in Bethlehem and God took him to Egypt so that he could bring him out of Egypt. 
The comparisons between Moses and, and Jesus are phenomenally interesting. There's more to come in the chapters as they unfold, but right here in this little birth story of chapter 2, 1 through 10, we see that there are, that there are arrows that are connecting us to the great deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you and I, we don't need to be delivered from Egyptian bondage. We're in a much worse situation than the Hebrews. We're sinners by birth and sinners by choice. We're in bondage to sin, the flesh, and the devil. We are a people that are enslaved, although we think we are free. But the only one that can truly set us free is the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has accomplished the potential for freedom for us. In fact, he's not accomplished the potential. He has accomplished freedom for us. For those who will put their faith in him. For those who will believe in him. For those who will trust in him. He sets them free. Not potentially, but actually. You may be here today, and if you don't know Jesus, you may not be subjugated to Egyptian bondage, but there's one over your life far worse than Pharaoh. You can be set free today by the great deliverer. I'm gonna lead us in a prayer in just a moment. For some of us today, we need to think about, okay, am I willing to become a nobody so that the Lord can one day use me? Am I willing to be faithful in the desert of Midia or in the bondage of Egypt so that I can become who he wants me to be. If you know Jesus today, you need to think about that as we're singing. Pray about that. Stop and allow it to resonate in your mind for just a moment. Do I think I'm somebody? Well, you might need to embrace the thought I need to become nobody. I want to be somebody. You can't be somebody if you're not willing to be a nobody. For others, maybe you'd like to talk to someone either about church membership or your spiritual life. We're gonna invite you to come forward. Maybe, maybe we could introduce, well, we will, not maybe, we will introduce you to somebody. We will do that. Who can talk with you from the Bible about how you can know forgiveness through Jesus Christ and you can be set free from bondage to Satan, to sin, and to death. Would you stand and let me lead us in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you so very much that this simple story is part of a more complex story, that this story is part of a greater story, that this narrative is part of a, a grander narrative. And so, Father, we thank you for giving us this particular story, helping us see how it fits in and to recognize that you are in it even though it's not till the very end of the chapter that you are specifically mentioned. You're in our story. We might not feel you, we might not see you, we might not hear you, but if we belong to you, you are with us. And so Father, take these final moments, use them in our lives for your glory and for our good as we worship your son in song. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.